This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage comes from Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Let's jump to verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Amen.
every fall uh, at Gospel City, we do a two-week uh, sermon series on this idea of sojourners. Uh, sojourners is the idea that you are displaced from home. Uh, this is the second part of this series. And as we uh, look into this passage, the reason uh, we focus on this idea of being displaced is that essentially all of us are. Uh, you are a foreigner uh, living, here in, living here in Korea. And, you know, 11 years ago, uh, we didn't have as many people who knew about K-pop and K-drama. And so people who came out to Korea didn't really have an interest in Korea. It was just another land to explore. But now, with K-pop and K-drama, we've got a lot more people who have got a great interest in Korea. But what you will find is that even living here in this great and beautiful nation, you're going to encounter real hardship. And you're going to feel like you don't belong. And so we intentionally do a two-week sermon series every fall for those who are coming into Korea, for those who've been in Korea, to, re to be reminded that this is not your home, Korea. But also, others of you are Korean, and this is uh, the, the nation that you grew up in. But you find yourself at an English-speaking church, and so you are also displaced. And even you at this good church will start to sense at some point, oh, it's not easy. Being in a community where I'm not fully understood because of my Koreanness. But really, all of us are sojourners because as a believer, you recognize that this world is not our home. And so, this sermon series really hits uh, us on a couple of levels. I mean, even in scripture, the way that Christians are described, for example, in the book of Peter, the letters of Peter is that you are an elect exile. And those two words, chosen, right? A chosen outsider, an elect exile, that is who you are. And it's in this sojourning, as you are a foreigner here in Korea or an English or Korean speaker here in uh, this church, that you start to sense that on an accentuated level, and what we want you to understand is that there is actually a deeper level, a deeper thing that God is doing in you in this season. And if you allow God to really work while you're displaced, as you have a greater sense of, of wanting to belong, as that longing grows, if you allow God to work in that hardship, you will see God transform your heart in ways that you could have never imagined. Because throughout Scripture, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the Israelites, they're all displaced. None of them grow up in their homes. And Jesus himself, what does he say? That I have no place to lay down my head. The disciples are told, go. This is a deep lesson God's people are always learning, even in their homes, right, back at Chicago or wherever, but all the more for you. 
And this year, we're focusing on the theme of a hostile world, sojourning in a hostile world, especially as a believer, as we live in a post-Christian culture. And what that means is the cultures of the world are now in opposition to the values of a believer. And so as the cultures and the values of the world start to have conflict to our beliefs, you start to realize this is a hostile world. It's not easy to be a believer. And so we're asking the further question of how do you sojourn in a hostile land, in hostile times? As you think about that question, the question really ends up being, what does it mean to be a Christian in this day and age? The way in which we will learn from Daniel and how to be faithful in a hostile world is that we have to know how to work. That you have to be faithful in your work, faithful at work. That may not be the first thing that you, that you thought of in terms of what does it mean to be faithful as a Christian in a hostile world. Daniel 6 would tell you, be excellent at your work. Being faithful as a Christian in the workplace, it does not mean, it could, but does not simply mean doing a Bible study at your workplace. It doesn't simply mean in a 15-minute you know, break you read your Bible. It doesn't mean that you share your faith and, and do personal evangelism at work. Now, all those things are good, but that is not what I'm talking about in terms of being faithful at the workplace. What does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace? In verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. That's, that's like, like, a, like, like a governor, maybe a, a mayor of some sort, uh, someone who's overseeing to be throughout the whole kingdom. So about 120 governors or so overseeing this land of Persia. And over these 120 governors, these satraps, he places, Darius places about three other key leaders overseeing this 120. So my guess is it's, it's broken down, right, to about 40, 40, 40, maybe something along those lines. So he sets three officials over them, and Daniel was one of them, to whom these satraps should give account, so the king might suffer no loss. So as Darius is the king of Persia, Daniel, this believer of Yahweh, is uniquely put into this position. Why? In verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. His work was so excellent that he had distinguished himself amongst the others. So much so that King Darius wanted to promote him to be the sole overseer, where Darius would still be king, but then he would rely fully on Daniel to run the empire. And this is a big deal. If you don't know anything about Persia, Persia at this time and about a century later, would have been the greatest nation to have existed in history up to that point. So imagine Daniel and his 
qualifications and his skills and how excellent he was in what he did. But then in verse 4, we recognize it wasn't easy. As he pursued excellence in his workplace, he did it in a world where to be a believer of Yahweh, he lived in a hostile land. So in verse 4, what do we see? How hostile are these people? And the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. It's not simply that these other satraps, these other co-workers, if you will, were annoyed at Daniel. Oh, there he goes again, showing off. No, they hated him. So much so that what you will see is they wanted to take his life. So in this hostile work environment, what does Daniel do? How does he maneuver? How does he behave as a believer? He worked excellently. He was an excellent worker. And notice how it's described in verse 3. Right? Because an excellent spirit was in him. It wasn't simply his personality type. It wasn't because of his Myers-Briggs, you know, assessment. It wasn't because he was an Enneagram 3 and he's a high achiever. And that's why he was excellent in his workplace. No, the way that it's described, it's a spiritual thing. In Daniel 1, it speaks of how God gave, God gave them learning. It was a spiritual gift, a spiritual desire within them to be different and in Daniel 6, what we see is not only did he have understanding and wisdom, he had a spirit that desired to be excellent. So much so that in this pagan nation of Persia, he did his work so well that for Darius, his, he didn't care about Daniel's faith because he did such amazing work. And when you think about that, there's so much wisdom there for you in the hostile world that we are living in. More and more, as people know that you are a believer, they're going to have thoughts about you, especially if you're coming from America. And it's in that world that you are living in. They're going to want to find something wrong with you, some way to bash you. And in this, what we see Daniel simply be faithful in is in his work. You see, the pursuit of excellence in the workplace, it's not a secular activity. It's a spiritual one. The reason Daniel pursued excellence in his workplace was not because he was secular and he had compromised his faith. It was actually a spiritual one. Through his work, he was serving God. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of faith and work. It's this, uh, it's this theological term, faith and work. It's not talked about much in the church, but it's actually quite an important uh, concept to understand because most of our time is spent in the workplace. 
And if you don't know how your faith should shape your work, then you don't know how to be faithful, to worship God, to honor him in your work. And this idea of faith and work, what, the, what it means is that your faith should be integrated with all of life. That's not simply that you're a believer and you worship God here at 420 on Sunday and they're just waiting for the whole week to pass to be a Christian again to worship. But if you are a believer, I'm sure you know that all of your life is worship. What does that mean? As a student, it means that you study well. It means as a parent, you parent well. It means that as a worker, you work well. But this idea has broken down over time because of a heresy. It's what you would call a dualistic worldview. Right? A worldview where you see the world in, 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 in these two spheres. It's a false dichotomy, a false division. All of life should be worshipped, but with a sacred and secular heresy, this worldview, you start to then see some things as good and worship and other things as not. And so it's problematic because if you have a sacred and secular dichotomy, that means some things are spiritual, some things are not. What that means then is some things are meaningful and other things are not worth your time. And so some things you'll give it your best because that's the meaningful stuff, and the other stuff you won't give as much. So a secret secular heresy believes that the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. So pastors are spiritual, but you business people, secular, godless people, right? That the spiritual stuff is the stuff of prayer and Bible study and small group, and retreats, hint, hint. But the other stuff, your nine-to-five job, I just need to get by. I just need to not get in trouble. That's, that's what that's, but this, I'll give God everything, but not this stuff, because prayer, spiritual work is not, meaning, therefore, spiritual things are meaningful and important, and this is what I want to uh, honor God with, but then this other stuff is not as important. This was my worldview growing up. And so upon graduating college with an economics major and a computer science minor, ready to enter into the business world, I thought, uh, I thought the marketplace, my job, the sole purpose of it was to give me some money to make a living so that I can do the spiritual stuff, the sacred stuff. And so I worked at a telecom, a telecommunications company as an application support analyst, getting a paycheck, so proud, but hating my job. So I would go to work feeling like this stuff doesn't matter because it's not the spiritual stuff. It's the secular stuff. And the secular stuff is not the important stuff. And because it's not the important stuff, it's not the meaningful stuff. So I'd be at work just doing enough to not get in trouble. And I'd be at work thinking about church stuff, thinking about who I'm going to meet, thinking about the important stuff of, of discipleship, of sharing the gospel. And so I'd be at work preparing for small group. That was my life. 
until I got laid off. And I got laid off, not fired, I got laid off, but it was getting laid off. But I recognized I wasn't enough of an asset to that workplace where they had to make a, a financial decision. And I realized for me, I was just getting by. It wasn't an excellent spirit. You see, this idea of your work being spiritual, it may be subtle in your mind, but if that is how you see it, you won't give it your all. You'll simply do what's required of you, or you'll simply do it for the money and the promotion, and it's not God-glorifying. But it's important to understand this because the Bible begins with this idea that humanity you're created with dignity, that you have a value and a worth. That's how the Bible starts off, that you're created in the image of God. And a fundamental part of being made in the image of God is that you have dominion over the earth, that you work. And so Genesis 1:26, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that's the dignity. This is the reason we don't uh, murder because it's taking the life out of someone else made in the image of God. The reason anybody has value is not what they actually do and what, and what they're capable of. It's because of that they're made in the image of God. But being made in the image of God, what that then means, a big part of that is that you have dominion over the fish, the seas, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, and every creeping thing. What is that? It's a job. God didn't make Adam and Eve a pastor, a priest, right, a prophet. He made them gardeners. And he said, as you cultivate the earth, as you till and work the soil, as you produce crops, you worship God. And that's what they did before the fall. They did that beautifully in a God-glorifying way. And over generations, what do you have after you cultivate the earth? After generations, this is what you see. Buildings. People cultivating generation after generation after generation, using their thoughts, their skills, their, their analytical and strategic thinking, their innovation. All of it creates culture. And what we see Daniel doing generations after Adam and Eve is having dominion over the earth and being faithful in his work. Now, to, be, to state the obvious, I know that all of your work is not super exciting. But if it's honest work, if in some way that work is somehow a part of the system, how it gives a good and a service to people, that is how you love your neighbor. This is how Dan Doriani, a professor of mine who actually recently put out a book on work, he says it this way, all honest work is sacred when devoted to the glory of God. All honest work. And so you can't be a thief for the glory of God. You can't traffic people for the glory of God. That's not honest work. You can't have the right motive as you traffic people. That doesn't work. But if you have honest work in your 9-to-5 job or in Korea, 10-to-10 job, 
right? In, in that work that you do, when you teach that student, when you help that company make profit, it's in that you are loving your neighbor. And so Dan Dorian continues on and says this, many people have trouble seeing the value of their work. In truth, work is the chief place where we love our neighbors as ourselves, right? It's a chief place where you love your neighbor as yourself. At work, we have the greatest skill and training. We spend the most time, and we can bring the greatest resources to bear. What Daniel was doing is using all the learning, all the wisdom that he has done. So now he's probably, in my mind, he's excellent as a leader. He's probably excellent as a strategic thinker. He probably would have done podcasts on leadership back in the day. That's the kind of person that he was. He was excellent. People of all different people would want to learn from him because of his work. And so for us, how do we be faithful in a hostile land, in, a, in hostile times? Be excellent in what you do. You may not know how to articulate your faith in a hostile world. Right? You may not know how to articulate, how to defend your faith. You may not know how to address our culture's divisive topics, politics, sexuality, vaccines, masks, the list goes on. You may not know how to articulate these things, but what you can do, what you're given time to do, is to learn to be excellent at your work. So tell your neighbor be excellent in your work. I'm not sure if you have done that the past three months, but we're going to bring that back. Be excellent in your work. Know that in your work you can glorify God, but also be faithful to God's kingdom. To be faithful in God's kingdom. As I mentioned, he is faithful in his workplace, not because it's a secular thing, it's a sacred thing. And so he has not compromised his faith. It's actually because he has committed faith. You can't actually... Be faithful in the workplace without being faithful to God's kingdom. Do you hear me? You can't be faithful in your workplace if you're not committed and faithful to God's kingdom. Why? Because only being devoted to God and his kingdom do you have the wisdom. Do you have the convictions that drive the heart? Apart from that, it's too easy to look out for yourself and only yourself in the workplace. It's too easy to want to be good at your work for monetary, re for monetary reasons, for self-glory. It's too easy to make work about you and not God. And so you can only truly be excellent in your work when you're truly committed to God and his kingdom. And then in verse 5, what we see is that these people couldn't find anything against Daniel. They, these leaders wanted to get Daniel, but they could not find a way. So what do they do? And this is so evil. What they do is they use Daniel's faith to bring him down. He was only doing good for the Persian Empire. If you think about it, it would have been to their best interest to let Daniel lead. But because 
They despised his faith. They didn't care about what he brought to the country. They just wanted to bring him down. And so what you see in verses 6 to uh, six to 9 is these officials and petitioning, creating an ordinance to bring Daniel down. And how do they do that? They make a decree, they make an injunct- injunction saying that anyone who worships anyone else but the king will be thrown to the lion's den. Think about how asinine of an idea that is. They know the king is not God. They know he is not to be worshipped, but they hate Daniel's faith so much, they don't care about what he brings to the country, that they create this ridiculous law to have everybody worship this king for 30 days. King Darius, he loves it. Sounds great. Worship me? All right. Let me sign the papers. And now they know they've got Daniel. As soon as this law is passed, what does Daniel do? What does Daniel do as soon as this law is passed? Anyone who worships or prays to anyone but the king, what does he do? Oh, what, what, what just passed? What law? Oh, that, that law passed to worship Darius? Silly guys. He goes to his house and worships God as he always did. Isn't that interesting? For me, I'd be thinking, okay, now what does that mean for my faith? Now should I do this or should I do that? But what does he do? He simply continues to be committed to the kingdom. He doesn't worry. You know that saying, don't worry, be happy? I'll say, don't worry, just obey. When you don't know what to do with your faith in these hostile times, when you don't know what the right way to go is, just obey. Just continue to do what you've been doing. If someone has something against you because of your faith and you don't know how to respond, just continue to do what you do. Don't worry about it. Just obey and trust the Lord that he'll give you that wisdom. Now, I want to address why Daniel is praying in this way. He's not simply praying in this way because it was simply habit. It meant something to him. This comes from 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 when King Solomon dedicates the temple. And when he dedicates the temple, this is what he says. In verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy. And so Solomon is prophesying in one sense, saying that if at one point in time our people are taken in captivity because of our sins, then this is what the people should do. When the heaven is shut up and therefore no rain, uh, and, there, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sins when you afflict them, then here in heaven, meaning uh, the prayers that we praise are heard in heaven, here in heaven, God, and forgive the sin of your servants, the pure people Israel. When you teach them the when you teach them the good way in which they should in, in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of forgiveness. God forgive us. Daniel, he's committed in his workplace. He's serving Darius, this pagan king. 
faithfully, excellently, not because he loves Darius personally, or he's so devoted to Darius, but because he's placed in this time. But all the more, all the more because he's committed to the, the true king. Obedience is an act of faith. When you don't know what to do, simply obey. Why? It's an act of faith. You're trusting that the Lord will do something out of your faith. But then... In 1 Kings 8, I want you to know how it all starts. Why does Solomon even build this temple? What's the whole purpose of this temple? Why does he say that if our people are taken away to pray to this land, to Jerusalem, why does he say this? The whole temple, the purpose of it was the presence of God. In verse 12, the Lord has said that he would dwell thick in darkness. When there is no hope that he would Dwell thick in darkness. I have indeed built you in an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. But Daniel's desire was not simply forgiveness, was not simply a restoration of his land. He wanted the Lord's presence. Why does he pray? and deny this injunction to stop praying to Yahweh and start praying to Darius. Why does he do this? It's not simply obedience. It's obedience fueled by love. Obedience is not simply an act of faith. It's one fueled by love. Why do you obey in a hostile time? Yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's much more than the right thing to do. It's you do it because you love the Lord. You love his kingdom. To be faithful in the workplace, you have to have a commitment to the kingdom. And all of this is over, overseen by the faithfulness of God. How do you be faithful in hostile times? Be faithful in your work. Be committed to the kingdom. But know that God is faithful. As we close this section, I want you to see a couple of things. What, does, what happens here? He's praying three times a day. The leaders, the satraps, they've got him. So they go to the king. And before telling the king about Daniel, his boy, he first, they first verify in verse 12, Oh, king, did you not sign an injunction? You did this, right? You signed this, this deed. This law that anyone who prays to anyone but you, you'll throw them into the line. You signed that paper, right? You signed that law. You proved it. Yes, I did. Well, king, let me tell you about Daniel, your boy, the one that you love. This is what he is doing. So in verse 14, what happens? The king, when he heard the words, was much distressed, set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Verse 15. So the king commanded Daniel, the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, and think about these words, this pagan king, may your God, whom you serve continually, not may, my God, may your God, the one that you serve continually, deliver you. And how much did Darius actually love Daniel because of all the work that he has done that night? What does it say? In verse 18, that the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. 
and sleep fled from him. He could not sleep throughout the night because he was so in pain thinking about Daniel. That's how powerful your work can be. Someone can completely disagree with your faith, but you bring such quality work that your other employer will see this guy, this girl, they bring value. Then at daybreak, in verse 19, the king arose and went uh, in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? He has hope that he survived the night. And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Can you imagine those words? This king that just threw you into the lion's den, he goes to Darius. Oh, king, live forever. How can he have that kind of loyalty, that kind of excellence? God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. Because I was found blameless before him. What's the point of this passage? Is it that if you're a good boy and a good girl in hard times, God's going to reward you? Is that what Christianity is about? Hey, if you're really good, if you read your Bible and pray and do all the church, I mean, go to that retreat when you do all these things. Oh, in that time of difficulty, when you're thrown into the lion's den, he's going to deliver you. Is that what this passage is about? That enough in life, over time, when you do enough good deeds, he's going to give you the right job, the right husband, the right wife. When you are good enough, is that what this passage is about? To be blameless before God, and when you're good, he will reward you. No. How do we know that? How many other upright, blameless people do we know in Scripture that were martyred? How many of the disciples who lived faithfully were martyred when they were thrown into the proverbial den of lions? The lions ate them. We know that that's not what Scripture is about because not only for the disciples we see that, but there's someone else more upright. Someone else who lived that perfect, blameless life. And what was the end of his life? It it wasn't a den of lions. It was to be hung on a tree, cursed for other people's wrongdoing. What this passage is about, it's foreshadowing the ultimate end. That in life, through all the ups and downs, yes, God will be faithful, but not necessarily how you define what faithfulness means. For us, we have to find what faithfulness means. It's to have a good job, to have a good marriage, to have good kids, and to have a, a, a good savings account. That's what we think faithfulness of God means, but that's not what it means. What does it mean? It's what his friends who were thrown into the furnace a few chapters before said. 
But these three friends said, if, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of his hand, O king. But if not, and that is the faith, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's knowing that even if you endure some persecution and hardship here in this life, you know that God in Christ has truly protected you from the true lion's den. That what Christ came to do is take upon your penalty, your blame, and he has taken upon the cross so that you would now truly be blameless. Not because you've lived such an upright life, but because in faith in Christ, his righteousness has been put on you. If this passage is simply pointing to Christ, then the question ends up being, why be faithful? Why risk our faith and our life and our, and our, and our well-being if it's not simply about being good so that God would reward us? Why do we do it? At the end of all of this, what do we see Darius do in verse 26? You see Darius get a glimpse of God and his glory and for a moment, worship. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble before and fear the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. Why do you risk your faith, your well-being? Because by putting yourself out there and seeing God work, it gives an opportunity, a moment for others to see that God. That's how we do it. We don't do it because we're courageous, noble people. We love God and our desire so that others would know him. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.